I sure do appreciate all of the work that went into that. Uh, these kids and adults practice for many, many hours over the last month or so in order to be prepared for tonight. And I hope that it's been a blessing to you. And while, while the story is familiar, it doesn't mean we should take it for granted or be any less thankful for it or any less impressed by it. Now, we didn't want to lose the ambiance of what we have going on in here right now. And so I'm not going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, but I do, I do want to spend a few moments talking about some truth. I'm going to be in the book of Luke, the book of Luke chapter 1, and reading a passage that you already heard read. Luke chapter 1 and beginning in verse number 26, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary. The reason the angel encouraged her to not be afraid is because it was obvious that she was afraid. The angel goes on to say, For thou hast found favor with God, and behold, Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Oh, let me pause for a moment. He is great. Though the world does not recognize him, he is great. But one day, the world will recognize him, and every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Verse 34, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. And even if you can't make sense of all of that, here's the right conclusion. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. I want to give you a thought and just talk with you for a few minutes about it. And that's this. The cost is worth it. There's a book that I have in my office. It's been one of the most helpful books just in developing certain habits and learning how to be the most influential in helping people. But it's the gain-loss principle. And before you consider what you gain... You have to consider how much you're losing. 
And, and after you subtract the loss from the gain, then you actually know whether or not the cost that you put into something was worth it. I enjoy sports and studying athletes and the amount of effort they put into their particular sport or craft. Olympic athletes, it said, will train four to eight years before ever making an Olympic team. They plan their training schedule out knowing that it's going to take them at a minimum four and sometimes as much as eight years of consistent training before they ever even qualify for the Olympics. For example, a couple of well-known American Olympic athletes who have both had tremendous success in their particular sports, Simone Biles, was reported to have worked 32 hours a week with only one day off. All of that devoted to training and strengthening for gymnastics. Michael Phelps, who's the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time, both in total medals and total gold medals won, trained for three to six hours a day in the pool every day with dry land exercises four to five days a week. Leading up to the 2012 London Olympics, Someone chronicled that they estimated the, all the athletes practiced a total of 10,000 hours in preparation for those events. You see, there's something that these Olympic athletes are after, and it is in part to qualify, and then it's to compete. And for a very, very, very small percentage, they'll have the opportunity to win, to win a medal for their country and for themselves. But what they all have in common, and you can hear testimonies that verify this from their perspective, the hours, the months, the weeks, the years, the days, the day after day after day after day of training, of relentlessly pushing your body, of sacrificing, of not hanging out with people, of not eating ice cream and snicker bars, which right there, that disqualifies me and probably a whole lot of other people. All of that sacrifice, all of that cost to them is worth it because of what they are winning. And they'll say, sure, I admit that I have to give up a lot. I admit that I have to sacrifice a lot. I admit that there are many things, that simple pleasures that people enjoy daily that I don't get to enjoy. And I have to push my body at a level that most people never even understand. But when I consider what I gain, when I consider being able to represent my country, when I consider being able to stand on that podium, when the American National Anthem is played over and over and over, can I get an amen? Okay, maybe not, whatever, that's fine. I love it. When I, when I consider those moments, then the cost is worth it. Well, let's be honest. They sacrifice so much for something that is so temporary. They enjoy that, and then it's gone. That moment is gone, and they have a medal, and they have a memory, and they have some national appreciation, perhaps. But one day, like everyone else, they're going to die. And they're going to stand before God. And that medal will mean nothing as far as their standing before and relationship with God. And yet they deem that medal what they can win to be worth the cost. 
Mary, in our text, is chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. The angel Gabriel is sent to deliver the news to her, and he makes some incredible statements about her in our text. He says, you're highly favored. The Lord is with thee. And this was interesting. I've never thought about this before. Not only was the Lord with her, but he was also about to be in her. I don't mean that in any silly way. It's just amazing how big God is. Blessed art thou among women. Now let me make a quick note here. There are religions that elevate Mary above what she should be. She is not our holy mother. She is not in any way our intercessor. And she does not possess one single iota of redemptive or intercessory power. But she did have favor with God and she was blessed and notice the words the Bible uses. The words, God, the words that are in the Bible matter. She was blessed among women. She was not blessed above women. She was only a virgin for a very short period of time. Because the Bible's clear. She went on to have a relationship with her husband. And she had, many, uh, she had several children after Jesus Christ was born And she, like everyone else, while she was chosen for a purpose, she was a sinner who was in as much need of the Savior that she would give birth to as everyone else was in need of it. But there is no doubt that while we do not elevate Mary above what is biblically proper, there is no doubt that she was specifically chosen for this once-in-a-lifetime task. Now, you would think someone with this kind of privilege would be immediately ecstatic. This is a young Jewish girl who had grown up knowing the truth of God. Obviously, she had the kind of life and character that God would honor by giving her this wonderful opportunity. And she grows up knowing the prophecies of Isaiah, knowing the prophecies of Jeremiah, knowing the prophecies of Malachi. She, uh, she recognizes and understands that the Messiah is going to come. And now this angel is in, in her location telling her that she's the one God has chosen to bring the Messiah into the world. And you would think there would be great rejoicing, but there's not. There's fear. There's obviously questions. Not only did she have doubts about the biological impossibility of this declaration, but there were also concerns about what this might cost her. You see, being the virgin mother of the Messiah came with a cost. She would be viewed as an unfaithful adulteress by some. Her commitment to her husband would be questioned by him. You say, well, that didn't happen. Actually, it did in Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, being a just man, sought to put her away privily Because it was understood while they had not yet come together that they were betrothed and in their legal terms they were legally married. Although the marriage had not yet been consummated, they were a married couple, but then she is known to be with child, and the conclusion from Joseph can only be that she has been unfaithful to to him. 
And I understand that God intervened. I understand and I thank God that he spoke to Joseph and that Joseph wasn't an impulsive or a hasty man, but he was patient and he was thoughtful and he gave God time and opportunity to speak to him through a very confusing circumstance. But there was a period of time where everything about Mary's virtue, everything about Mary's character was up for question by those around her. I understand that eventually the truth came out, and I'm thankful for the clarity that God gave, but there was a very significant amount of time where there was pressure on her, and there was a season of her life, though brief, that being the mother of the Messiah cost her something, especially in the way of how she was perceived. But she came to this conclusion Her statement in verse 38 says this, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. That's a statement of great faith, and essentially she was saying this, I can only control what I know and whether or not I live by faith. It's not up to me to control the, ultimately to control every perception of every other person because I'm choosing to live my life by faith in God. And so I'm going to submit to him and I'm going to trust him and I am going to wholeheartedly yield myself to being used in this way regardless of what it might cost me down the road, especially by way of how people perceive me. She concluded that being the mother of her Messiah, what an amazing thought. I know you're familiar with the song, but the one that Ashlyn saying, Mary, did you know? It's incredible that God entered her womb and still continued to be God. The cost of people's perception is worth the gain of having the Messiah. Here's the truth for us. Jesus Christ comes with a cost. Culture hates him and is opposed to him. I understand that in our nation's history, when there has been more of a focus put upon God, that there are are areas and there are even seasons when our nation can be friendly towards faith. I can't help but think about immediately after 9-11 and seeing Democrats, Republicans, Independents, everyone up on the Capitol steps singing God Bless America. And there have been these very brief seasons when everybody's all about God or however they view him and all about praying and we have those moments in time. But for the most part, People really aren't all that serious about knowing Jesus Christ and understanding the truth of the word of God as a nation. And the further our nation gets away from God, and do not fall for the lie that we are a Christian nation. We have long since ceased to be a Christian nation. You cannot sanction and legalize all of the violent and wicked things that we do as a nation and still consider yourself to be a Christian nation. The further we get away from God, the more hostile that it, people become publicly, politically, with entertainment towards the name of Jesus Christ. It's amazing that if people are in a hurry to endorse every other religion out there. We want to make room and people trip over themselves not to offend every other religion. But if you want to name the name of Jesus Christ, you're just kind of considered to be a weirdo. 
that attitude is out there. But it's not just in the world. For people to come to Christ sometimes costs them a normal relationship with their family members. There are parents that might turn their backs on their children. Not, not only for trusting in Jesus Christ, but for the direction that he leads you to live your life. Coworkers might dog you or give you a hard time and laugh at the commitment. And Jesus made this abundantly clear that if, if he suffered, then for us to identify with him will include some suffering in our lives as well. Following Jesus Christ, putting your faith in him isn't always going to be the easy or the popular thing to do. And there is a false narrative about the gospel that is preached that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and all your dreams are going to come true, you're going to get every promotion you want, everybody's going to love you, he's just going to elevate you, and it's almost like Jesus has become a Walt Disney prince of some kind or a genie that just makes everybody's life better. But I have a question for those outside of the American bubble. What about those believers in Egypt? What about those believers in communist China? What about those believers in Afghanistan where they know nothing of these kind of comforts? Whether you are in a foreign land to us or you are in this land, the truth of following the gospel is this. The truth of receiving Christ in one way or another, it's going to cost you something, especially concerning the perception of people around you. But Jesus Christ also brings incredible, incredible gains. Are you ready? Just a few. I'm almost done, really. You ready? The forgiveness of sins. You understand there's not varying levels of guilt with God. Either you are or you're not. That's why it says, if any man offend in one point, he's guilty of all. And this is what I love about this, the sacrifice of Christ. It wasn't, it wasn't just payment for what I would do. It was payment for anything that I was capable of doing. And every honest child of God, every honest sinner ought to be willing to admit that any sin that has ever been committed, I am capable of committing. Now, I don't want to be guilty of actually committing those, but I have a sin nature that if it's not kept in check by the work of the Holy Spirit and my submission to the Word of God, it can do a lot of terrible things. But no matter how terrible, no matter how dark, no matter how wretched, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is enough to forgive it all. The thief on the cross. He didn't have a chance to make any wrongs right. He didn't have a chance to contribute to the good bank account. He died a bankrupt sinner, except for in those final moments he did this. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said this, today you'll be with me in paradise. Forgiveness. I look at the woman who was caught in adultery in the very act the religious leaders say. I want to know how they knew all about that. But needless to say, they bring her and, and say to Jesus Christ, trying to tempt him and criticize him and find a fault in his philosophy. This woman was caught in the very act. Moses said she should be stoned. What do you say? Well, he just sat there, kept riding in the dirt and ignored him for a while. I love the fact that Jesus did not operate by their rules. And I love that. We're not commanded to operate by the culture's rules. He just kept writing in the dirt, and they kept pestering him. 
Like those little birds, mine, 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 answer me, answer me, answer me, answer me. So finally he looks up and he says this, let him that is without sin cast the first stone and goes back to writing. And one by one their guilty consciences drove them away in shame until it was just Jesus and this adulterous woman. I love, I love what he says. Where are thine accusers? Does anyone condemn you? No. It's just me and you, Lord. Well, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin, sin no more. The gain of Jesus Christ is forgiveness. The gain of Jesus Christ is eternal life in heaven. There is an eternal destination, heaven or hell. And it's only based on one thing, your relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot possibly do enough good to earn your way into heaven. You cannot possibly do enough righteous things that God will accept you and that you will be approved of by God based on your merit. There is only one way, and that is through the merit of Jesus Christ. And when a child of God dies, whether they were in rebellion or whether they had failed, when a child of God dies, they die in Jesus Christ. And when they stand before God, it is not their righteousness but the righteousness of Jesus Christ that guarantees them access into heaven. We have an eternal home that is waiting for us. I'm thankful for the good we get to enjoy in this country. I'm thankful to be able to have special services in comfortable surroundings like this. I'm thankful for all of the things that we are able to enjoy. But heaven is going to be so much greater than you can even begin to comprehend. And that is only through the labor and the work and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now I want to say one more thing. The life that he gives some of you are raising your children in a different and better way because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And you see the difference he made. Some of you have been delivered from addictions, be they substantive or your own attitude. Some of you have been helped in your work. Now, however it is, you see the benefit of Jesus Christ. You see the wisdom he gives, the insight that he gives. Knowing Jesus Christ comes with incredible gains. So we make this statement, the gain we receive from Christ is worth the cost that we have to pay for following Christ. The gain from Christ is worth the cost of Christ. You remember Stephen in, I think, Acts chapter 6? He wasn't even the pastor. He was just a God-filled laborer and follower of Jesus Christ. He's just helping people, serving people, ministering to people, doing what every believer ought to be doing, and helping out widows, ministering to those who were sick. And people, the, the religious establishment hear about, they hear about the good that's being done, and they hate it because it's a threat to their power. And so they call him before them, arrest him, and he begins to preach the gospel to them and confronts them with their own sinfulness and that Jesus Christ is the only way. And they're offended, and they take him out, and they stone him. And as he's dying, he makes a statement to the effect of, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. Right before that, he said something else, though. And you see, I see Jesus Remember, 
standing. He didn't say it exactly like this, but I know that's what was in his heart. Following Christ has cost me something. But what I'm, what I'm gaining is worth it. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to be this close to salvation but to refuse it. There are some of you that are here that you might not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And it's not in this church. It's not in a religious motion. It's in a relationship, faith in him. For some of you, you know that you're saved, but you also recognize, even as I talk about these truths, that you're not following him with the level of urgency and commitment that you ought to be, that he doesn't have the place of prominence in your life that you ought to be. And unlike Mary, there are areas of your life where you have not surrendered to him in your attitude or in your behavior. In some way, you have not said, be it unto me according to thy word. You are, you are denying yourself blessing and enjoying the goodness of God when you refuse to submit to his authority. So the question is twofold. Number one, do you know you have Jesus Christ as your savior? I'm not asking do you live a good life because your good is never good enough for God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm not asking if you live a good life. I'm asking, do you know there was a specific moment in your life where you acknowledged to God, I am a sinner, and the only way I can be saved is to put my faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know you have that moment in your life? Because if you don't, you need it. You can have that tonight. If you are saved, are you following him like you need to? Does he hold the place of prominence in your life that you ought that he ought to have. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Two questions, and they're very brief. First question is this. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Do you know for sure that you're saved? Do you know for sure that you're a child of God? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I wonder if there would be someone that would raise their hand and say, if I died right now, I don't know for sure that I would go to heaven, but I want to know that. I'm not going to do anything weird. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I just want you to raise your hand and say, would you pray for me? I'm not sure. I don't, I wrestle with that. I don't know. God bless you. I see it. You can put them down. Now, for those of you who are saved, you say, I, there, I'm, I'm not talking about just the fluctuations of life, but if there are specific areas that you know you have resisted submitting to God in, and while you have accepted him, you're not allowing his light and his life to guide you as it ought. You say, there are areas where I'm not yielded to him like I ought to be, and I want to be. Would you pray for me? I wonder if you'd raise your hand. Yeah, I see him going up. God bless you for your honesty. In just a little while, the service will be over, and I want to encourage you, if you need to talk to someone you can talk to myself, several of the people that were on the platform. I'll be out in the foyer. I'd love to have a conversation with you about the truth of Christ and be an encouragement to you in any way that I can, that we can. But I want you to consider all that you've gained from Jesus and to remember that following him is worth the cost. The gain from Christ is worth the cost of Christ. Father, thank you for your truth and for those 
who perhaps need to know you and do not yet have that salvation relationship with you. And Father, thank you for those who are saved, given testimony to that, but Lord, there might be areas where they're struggling in, and I pray that you would help God, that you would bring conviction, and that you would show them their need and help them to have the desire to follow you and to live a life that's pleasing to you. Would you please bless the remainder of the service? And we'll give you the glory and the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can all direct your attention this way. We're going to conclude our service with a candle lighting ceremony. There are three things as the men make their way down and as Brother Nate is getting in position. There are three things that we're symbolizing with this ceremony. The first is this, that the light of the world, as it says in John 1, is Jesus Christ. I'm so glad the light came into the world. Number two, we're symbolizing the difference that the light has made in our lives. I understand it's not pitch black in here, but you'll notice that once your candle is lit, that it illuminates just a little bit. And in the same way, the light of Jesus Christ has illuminated your heart and has changed your life in a positive way. And then number three, as your candle is lit and then you light the person's candle next to you, it's a reminder that it is our responsibility to pass that light along to those around us. We'll give an account for the people that we don't witness to, that we should have witnessed to.